come on a journey with a cinephile. to the fourth episode of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I am your guide through all of these films that I'm watching, David Garrett Jr. As of today, for this episode, I have three older movies that I watched this week. I believe all of them were pretty much at the Gateway Film Center that I watched. And then outside of that, I have two featured reviews at the end here. And the theme for this month is actually going to be holiday slash wintry horror films, as well as I'm also in the middle of my year-end roundup of any newer horror films that I haven't got a chance to watch. So that will be a double feature of a wintry horror movie as well as a new one. I hope you enjoy the episode. So I'm going to go ahead and go first to a musical break before I get into what I watched this week. This is my winter song to you The storm is coming soon It rolls in from the sea My voice a beacon in the night My words will be your light To carry you to me Is love alive? Is love alive? Is love
This show is going to be Cat People from 1982. It is directed by Paul Schrader, screenplay by Alan Armsby. The story is from DeWitt Bodine. It stars Natasha Kinski, Malcolm McDowell, and John Hurd. It is currently sitting at a 6.1 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is a young woman's sexual awakening brings horror when she discovers her urges transform her into a monstrous black leopard. Now, I've seen this one twice now. The first time I checked it out was on DVD, and then the second time around here, it was showing at the Gateway Film Center. So I decided to go give it a view in there. And I actually saw the first time around the original from 1942 in pretty close proximity to seeing this version which I actually think they did a pretty good job at taking the concepts and ideas from that original and just kind of updating them and make it more sexualized as well. Now, an interesting opening scene that we get here, which is actually not explained until much later, but it is kind of funny to say that we get a David Bowie does a theme song here that is over top of it. Um, Irene Galler is coming to New Orleans to finally meet her brother Paul, and he's going to take her home. What happened here, though, is she grew up in foster care. Their parents passed away when they were very young, and they actually worked in the circus. But for whatever reason, Irina was raised in foster care, like I said, and 
I don't know why her brother wasn't. It must have been he was older or something along those lines. But he, she is coming out to New Orleans to actually live with him. But they actually have a dark family secret. If they have sex, they actually will turn into a giant black leopard unless they have sex with each other. So this actually creates kind of an interesting situation here that is being explored in that they have an incestuous relationship that if they want to actually survive and procreate, they have to sleep with each other. It's interesting to note here though is Irina falls for Oliver Yates who works at a zoo and it's kind of fitting that they end up crossing paths because of this because he gets called in when they find a black leopard inside of a room that attacks a prostitute and this ends up turning out to be Paul as he had sex with somebody changed and then tried to kill her or actually tried to kill the and this prostitute here but he ends up getting stuck as his black leopard for some time and actually starts living at the zoo as they take him into custody now as I was kind of getting on with here is that they actually take a lot of scenes from the original and just kind of update it. Like much later I'll actually talk about um, the infamous pool scene that we get. But we also get in this one that Irina doesn't just go to the zoo to kind of look at the animals. She actually starts working there but that ends up having a connection with the black leopard that ends up turning out to be her brother. But I will say, talking about Oliver, he has this interesting part here where it doesn't necessarily work as well as it did in the original film for me, which is that there's a love triangle between Irina himself and Alice Perrin, who also works with him at this zoo. Now, I think she has feelings for Oliver, but I don't really feel like they're being reciprocated, where in the original one, there's actually an affair going on that I think worked actually much better. Now... She does end up having that infamous scene that I was referring to in the pool here, but it doesn't carry as much weight for me as it really just kind of rushes right through it. I would say that for this, the acting is really good across the board, though. Kinski has some good growth from a naive young woman into this strong person at the end who, as the synopsis stated, has a sexual awakening that makes her grow into the character that she ends up in. I'm a big fan of Malcolm McDowell as well. He has he plays in a few of some of my favorite films, and I just like seeing his ability to command the screen when he's on it. I also think there are some good acting performances from Heard. Annette O'Toole actually plays Alice. Uh, Ruby D plays a maid for the Gallers, and her name is Famale, and it actually has a pretty funny backstory there. Ed Bagley Jr., Frankie Vazon, and Lynn Lowry are also in this, and they're all pretty solid in my opinion. We also get some really good effects here. I will say I'm not the biggest fan that a lot of them actually happen off screen, and we just kind of get to see the aftermath of it. But the blood does look good, and I actually think there's a pretty solid transformation scenes that we get in this one as well. I do feel that this runs too long, though. Coming in at just under two hours, it outstays its welcome for me. And I believe there's at least a good 15 to 20 minutes I could have been cut to, to tighten this thing up overall. The last thing I'll go over would be the soundtrack. Seeing that Giorgio Morador is the one that did it really kind of made me smile because he also was behind my favorite film of all time in Scarface. 
I think what he did fits and enhances the scene that they needed, like what the feel of each scene that it was going for. Plus, I actually think it's kind of funny that we get uh, Bowie doing the main theme for this movie as well. With that said, I still prefer the original. Not to say this isn't good, it just has some slight issues for me that kind of bring its score down, so I had to come in at a 7.5 out of 10 overall. And the next film I wanted to talk about real quick is actually a short that I had somebody reach out to me over Facebook and ask me to check out and give a quick review of, and that is actually on YouTube, and it is called The Man Who Lives Under the Porch. It comes from 2019. It is actually written, directed, and stars Travis Vulture, and it also features Emma Lernar, who is the one who actually reached out to me, and she is also an actress in it and is the camera operator. Now this one runs about seven minutes, and we have a young woman locked in a cage with a crazy man who looks quite disheveled and covered in blood who is talking to her, and we realize that he's the one that actually put her there. Now this is actually interesting in that Travis does a great job at acting like a crazy person, and I'm actually kind of wondering how much of this was scripted and how much of this was him just kind of doing his own thing. And he really takes over the character, though, so I have to really give him a lot of credit for that. What's also interesting is that he pretends to be a couple different professions, which I found to be quite interesting. Like, he starts off as a encyclopedia salesman and actually plays that character up, and then he becomes a barber and starts to cut his own hair, which I have to give him credit for getting that much into character. Now, the one thing I did have an issue with it, though, is that it, it comes off as found footage, but I don't know if it personally needed to be. Add a whole lot for me. And it almost makes me wonder why they use some of the camera effects because it takes it out of being found footage by doing that. And I just find it weird that they're in the cage and they're doing the filming, so it just kind of makes me wonder um, what the reason is for that. Now, if you want to just make this kind of like a highlight reel audition type tape just to kind of show what you can do, they definitely did a great job there. Now, I will say I'm glad I got to see this. I think that this duo definitely has some talent. And I'd actually be really interested to see them tack on some longer type um, shorts and to kind of see what they could do there. But they did a really good job with the music here. Travis' look and performance really held me and does really give off a really creepy vibe. Has the feeling of being the beginning to an extreme gore film. And if that's what going for, I definitely would like to see them extend this out and see what they could do with it there. Um, I found this to be above average overall and I give this a 6 out of 10. Next, I'll move into another film from the 1980s, Child's Play from 88. This is a horror thriller. It is directed by Tom Holland. The story was written by Don Mancini. He also co-wrote the screenplay along with John Lafia and Tom Holland, which I'm assuming these other two were rewrites. It stars Katherine Hicks, Chris Sarandon, and Alex Vincent, as well as Brad Dourif. It is sitting at a 6.6 .6 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. And our synopsis here is a single mother gives her son a much sought after doll for his birthday only to discover that it is possessed by the soul of a killer. Surprisingly, this is my second viewing all the way through of this. It used to be on the movie channels all the time growing up, but I, for whatever reason, never actually sat down and caught it from beginning to end much more familiar with the sequels if I'm going to be perfectly honest and the second viewing here was on a 35 millimeter print at Gateway Film Center it has an interesting way to start us off we see the killer that is going to take over the doll in Charles Lee Ray 
as he is fleeing from the detective who is on his case, Mike Norris. And what ends up happening is he goes into a toy store and ends up using some voodoo magic to go into a doll, which I should probably address this now. I feel like this is a little bit hokey. They really have a mishmash of different things to create Charles Lee right here, which most people will know that he is a conglomerate of three different murderers to make up his name that is and i just think it i guess they had to find a way to get him inside the doll it's just with how the character acts i don't necessarily know if it works but i'm willing to give it a pass just because you know movie logic but then from here andy gets the toy where we don't know if the doll is actually committing the crimes or if it's andy now we get little hints here and there, um, like an example is after the friend who is watching him dies, we see that on the bottom of Chucky's shoe we see a little bit of flower and we know that he's possessed, but it's just one of those things where the film does a pretty solid job at making us wonder. Now I would personally, after one of Chucky's associates dies, I think that might be where I would actually start to question if something is going on here, because Andy has no an association with him and rides a train down to a rougher part of chicago for it to happen so that's another where i'm like would i really believe that this is kid when this person dies but i do think that we get some good setup in how andy's mother starts to realize that maybe it is the doll and that's the great reveal with the batteries falling out of the box and then we get to actually see Chucky come to life in front of her, which I think is a really solid scene. And then on the other side here, we have Mike's belief takes him almost being murdered in his car before he finally comes around to the fact that, yeah, it is Chucky and he is possessing this doll. And I do think kind of bringing back to Chucky's scene where he comes to life, we get a good use of a variety of practical effects here. I know there's some robotics that make the doll move around, and I know from a distance we also get a small person or a child actor who is dressed up like him, which I also thought was a good use, uh, you know, for something that far away. And the deaths we get here, for the most part, are pretty solid. I'm not the biggest fan, though, of the voodoo death, because it stretches my belief for everything here, which I guess, if I'm able to use that voodoo as how he goes into the doll, I should be able to get around this. It's just something about it just doesn't fit the rest of the film for me. I will say the film has good pacing. I felt the soundtrack fit for what they needed. Doesn't necessarily stand out and not one that I normally go back to, but it does fit. As for the acting, uh, Vincent was great for a child actor, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. That scene where he breaks down in foster care really pulls at my heartstrings. I think Catherine Hicks and Chris Sarandon were both solid. Duroff is really interesting here because we only get to see him in the very beginning, but they do a great job of blending his natural humor with how dark his character is, so I can definitely get down with that, and I mean, he does play the character pretty demented as well. I've kind of already harped on it a few times, the voodoo's a bit much, but I will give that you know a pass with movie logic, and I actually have to say that I think as of right now, this is still my favorite of the series, even though it, I've only seen it a couple times, but I still give this one an 8.5 out of 10. Okay, moving on to the next film that I saw this week, which will be Saw from 2004. This is directed by James Wan, 
It is also from a story by James Wan as well with Lee Winnell, with Lee Winnell actually writing the screenplay. It is starring Carrie Ellis, Lee Winnell, and Danny Glover. It is currently sitting on a 7.6 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. This is actually a horror mystery thriller from the United States. And the synopsis here is two strangers who awaken in a room with no recollection of how they got there soon discover their pawns in a deadly game perpetuated by a notorious serial killer. Now, this one I'm assuming a lot of people have seen because I actually caught this for the first time in the theaters. And then I've seen it a few times, um, but I'm not sure the last time that I actually watched it all the way through. Now, I did get to watch it at the Gateway Film Center recently and then rewatched it with um, a lady that I've been seeing. Now, just some of my thoughts on it is with a couple of rewatches and a more critical eye and knowing the reveal, this film still does hold up for me. The mystery that we get is really good, and even though we learn more about Jigsaw as we go, now that I know that there's a film series, this one, we still get the idea of him punishing people who aren't necessarily good. It is a bit of a vigilante justice type situation. It just isn't his place to do it, but with what he's facing, he does want people just to kind of be better. Now, to focus on what is going on in this room here, I think the mystery is good. We get things that happen that led them to the next thing, and they kind of just get more information as they go, and that works for me. I like that neither guy trusts the other one. They call each other out as they both continue to hide secrets. I believe that they might not remember everything after they're being drugged is a realistic side effect of kind of whatever got them there. I don't even mind the other stories going on around them either. Learning more about Jigsaw through the other games that he set up is a nice touch. Seeing Detective Tap fall into madness as he's trying to stop him is something else that I can really buy into. And I even like that he's really thinking that it is Dr. Lawrence Gordon and is that's where he is currently posted up and watching him from across the alleyway. It is also interesting that something bad happens that... He doesn't go through the proper protocol and that gets him, you know, removed as a police officer and then down the dark path that he's currently on. Now, I will admit there's a bit lofty things that go on here as well. It is interesting that at the time of the original film, there's only one survivor, which is Amanda, played by Shawnee Smith. That is realistic, but there are so many moving parts that you'd think some of it would end up failing more often. Not that everything goes completely according to plan either. I just think sometimes the overall premise is a bit far-fetched and maybe a bit convoluted as well. Now that'll shift me to the pacing of this film, which I do believe is still on point. We get an eerie feeling when these two guys wake up, and the more that we learn and the more that we kind of see things go on, it does really start to build the tension. Knowing that the clock as it nears six is going to spell disaster for Dr. Gordon if he actually doesn't kill adam in this room with him that his family is going to be the one to pay the price the only issue that i do really have here is the editing because we're given a flashback inside of a flashback and it just a lot of it is played out in the past and i kind of feel now that i know how everything goes is just a little bit just out of place and a little bit confusing at times as well and i will say that the acting for the most part is fine 
Seeing that this is Winnell's first acting gig, I thought he did really well. I'm actually pretty disappointed, though, in Ellis here. Is I know he's a good actor, but he just overacts so bad in this film that makes me a little bit disappointed there. Um, I do like Glover in his Descent into Madness as he's trying to stop Jigsaw. The Wing, who plays one of the detectives, Dina Meyer, Smith, and Monica Potter are all solid here. This takes me to the effects, which again, for the most part, I thought were pretty solid. This is actually a pretty low-budget film, but it, and it gives it such a gritty feel to it. The traps that we see here are set up in a way that are unnerving and quite realistic looking. The iconic reverse bear trap is great. I even like the, the, the Billy doll that Jigsaw uses. It is quite creepy, and if I'm going to be completely honest, the only gripe that I have is a lot of shaky camera movements. I don't remember it back when this first came out, but these last couple times, I know they're using it for time-lapsing with what happens in the traps, as well as for characters to get to one place to another. I'm just not the biggest fan, and it looks a little bit hokey to me now. It is shot well outside of that, though. Uh, the last thing to cover would be the soundtrack, which I think for the most part is on point. The theme song to this and the series I'm a big fan of. I actually listen to it quite regularly while I'm writing. And I think the rest of the score doesn't necessarily stand out, but it definitely fits for what is needed and helping to enhance the feel of the scenes. Now with that said, this film definitely holds up even after multiple viewings. I think this is one that the first time you experience the overall film is good and then the subsequent viewings of it are there to kind of just piece together what you might not have missed and to really see what is going on it has an interesting and quite scary concept i like the mystery that builds with the two guys that are stuck in this room as well as the deeper story that is happening around them it builds tension along with the mystery that i said i just do think that the editing is a bit tedious and some of the cutting to the past is a little bit wonky for me the acting is good aside from a subpar performance from Ellis, which still surprises me. The effects were good, uh, again from some of the shaky camera movements. I really like the main theme and the rest of the soundtrack works. Overall, I still think this is a good movie and definitely one of the more iconic ones from the 2000s if you ask me. I would come in on this one at an 8 out of 10. Now that's everything that I saw for this week, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is send you off to the first trailer for my featured review of Knife Plus Heart. Laisse-moi venir chez toi. Anne, c'est terminé. J'ai le cœur sac de toi. Vous savez quand on s'oublie avec l'autre, les autres, qu'on sait plus où on est, une forme d'amour en quelque sorte. a été poignardé, une mort particulièrement violente. Carl venait de tourner dans un de mes films. Quel genre de film exactement Oh, arrêtez votre charme. Faites pas le coup des types qui sont pas renseignés. T'es un super beau mec, tu sais. Vous faites quoi Je suis productrice de films érotiques. La seule chose, c'est que parfois on manque de filles, alors on fait ça entre mecs. Tu appelles-moi demain matin Dès que tu auras chier, j'écoute. Je crois que je vais changer le titre du film. Le tueur homo, vous en dites quoi Tu me trompes ou tout ça te fait ni chaud ni froid ah Alors comme ça, vous n'avez aucune piste Vous attendez que tous mes acteurs crèvent pour vous mettre au boulot Personne ne veut tourner avec nous, ils sont tous terrifiés. Il y a bien un indice. Près des deux premiers cadavres, on a retrouvé des plumes du même oiseau. 
plus attentive à tes rêves. Ils sont là pour t'aider. First of two featured reviews for this episode is going to be, like the trailer stated, Knife Plus Heart. This comes from 2018. The title in its original language is Un Kunte Dans Le Coeur. It is written and directed by Jan Gonzalez, and it was also co-written by Cristiano Mangioni. It stars Vanessa Paradis, Nicholas Mari, and Kate Moran. It is a drama horror romance thriller coming from France and Mexico. It is currently sitting at a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is Paris, summer 1979. Anne is a producer of cheap gay porn. When Lois, her editor and companion, leaves her, she attempts to get her back by making a more ambitious film with the flamboyant Archibald. Now, this is actually a film that one of my buddies from social media told me about, so shout out to Tim Walker. It was actually already on my radar as a new film to check out from the year, but with his high praise, it really made me move it up my 2C list. Also, one of my favorite podcasters really seemed to enjoy it as well, with a shout-out to Duncan McLeish from over at the Podcast Under the Stairs. This is a neo-giallo film that comes from France and Mexico, like I said earlier. Now, I know for purists, that doesn't make it a giallo film since it's not from Italy, but after seeing this, it most definitely is a giallo. Now, I should lead off here saying that this is an art house film. We start with some intercutting scene, Lois, as she is editing the latest dailies for a film. Now, the intercutting that I was talking about is with the star of the film that she is editing, Carl, played by Bastian Waltier, is inside of a gay fetish bar. He's dancing with some guys, and he looks across the room to somebody in a leather mask. This person leaves, and Carl follows. Now, the two of them end up going home together, where Carl is tied up and then killed as the masked person stabs him to death with a dildo that is concealing a knife. Later that night, Anne calls Lois, and we learn the two were former lovers, but they're currently broken up. It sounds like they had been seeing each other for close to 10 years, where Anna still wants her back, but uh, Lois just can't do it. Now, this upsets her. This upsets Anna, actually, that she is hung up on, and we get that she has a bit of a drinking problem and highly emotional. Now, next day at work, we see Archibald directing an adult film with one of the actors being Theory, played by Felix Martidaud, and two other actors. Anne goes upstairs, and we see her spying on Lois while she's working and I should point out here that there is the usual motif that you get from giallo films where there is close up on the eye where we see this point here and there's actually a character later who's wearing a t-shirt with an eye on it a teardrop falling from it now things take a turn when the police call to inform them of the death of Carl this though gives Anne an idea for her next movie And it takes a dark turn, though, as more of her actors are killed by this masked man. 
the film that she is making is actually mimicking these crimes around her, and she even has Archibald playing Anne in the film. Now, earlier, we see Anne looking around for other actors because uh, Theory has an issue with heroin, so she ends up finding Nans, who is Khalid Aulioak, who looks very similar to the star of the film that we saw earlier, and she offers him the same amount of money that he makes in a week by just uh i believe it's three days worth of filming which at first he declines because he is not gay but the money is too good for him to turn it down but then things kind of take a turn where they can't keep filming because the actors are afraid for their lives because everybody being killed on it so Anne decides that she has to solve this crime before it's too late and before they have to give up their movie I should say here at least that I'm really glad that I got to see this movie because there's a lot to unfold here. The first thing I really want to dive into is the time period this is set. I think it's quite interesting having this be at the tail end of the 1970s, which is really a time for free love. I'm of course looking at this as American because you know we're quite prudish here, but I know in that time in my country that was kind of the thing where I know over in European countries it's not so much and especially in France but I do think this is quite important though for my next that would be homosexuality which is a big motif here Anne and Luis are a couple that are now broken up Anne is the director for gay porn with Lois as the editor all of the actors we see at first are all homosexuals as well what is interesting about this though is Nans is straight but as I said the money was too good for him to pass up so he decides to give it a go and he's actually a natural from kind of what everybody seems to be reacting to. This film really does do well at celebrating that there's nothing wrong with this and I will be completely honest I dig that. There's a dark side to all this as well though. This brings me to the point that the killer is knocking off actors for this company. What is interesting about this, though, is the actual reason the killer is killing them is not because they're gay. At the time of the reveal, it is believed that that's the case. But as we get to learn more about what is going on here, and actually at the reveal of this film, we see that's not the case. Now, we get that normal giallo trope to explain everything that is happening actually makes the killer seem tragic. That was one of the things that Tim told me about in his recommendation, and I have to completely agree with him there. Now, I'm actually going to have a spoiler section at the end of this where I'll kind of delve into this a bit more, but I just wanted to kind of give a brief overview about this aspect of the film before I got into that. Now, since I've already shifted over into this a little bit, I should kind of explain why this definitely is a giallo film. Now, I've already kind of went over that we have the over-explaining that you get at the end of those films. We also get the great-looking killer. They wear a black leather mask and have similar gloves as well to that. And what is also fitting is this mask fits right in with a section of the subculture of kind of sadomasochism. And the killer uses a knife for their killings. We get that Anna is having dreams that lead us to the truth. And I bring that up because this is a non-conventional thing that happens in a lot of Giallo films where... You don't necessarily have to have the lead figure things out on their own. They can use supernatural type things like dreams to figure things out. Um, she's not a cop, which is another Jalo trope. And it's through the dreams that actually kind of get explained why the killer is doing what they're doing. 
Now, I really dig this, and I have to admit, I did not predict the killer, which is something that I grade these types of films on, so that was definitely a perk here as well. That will take me next to the pacing. I do think this runs a tad bit long for my liking. It comes in around 105 minutes. I don't know what I would cut out of it, though, and I didn't get bored either. It's just... And it's because everything I felt that we got here, we really needed. We get introduced to our characters, and we get that first death within the opening 10 minutes. From there, we build the tension as things happen, and it keeps going along with that Anne actually goes to a different area where there's a myth she kind of learns from a bird person who tells us about this grackle i believe it was called that is blind and there's actually a myth for this certain area so that's the forest that she ends up going to and the village that is with it and i also kind of think it's pretty good that as the kills go we get them at a good interval and it ramps up the, the tension to a satisfying conclusion in a movie theater now here i want to go to the acting next which i thought was good across the board paradis playing the lead i thought she was really good here we see that she's unstable and has a drinking problem throughout and actually unfortunately connected with her in that I've had an ex-girlfriend break up with me and I've done everything that I could to get her back. We don't really get a lot of growth from her aside from the ending, which I feel like is trying to tell us that she's finally at peace with everything, but she is still kind of the same character throughout and she never really kind of gets over her issues. And we do get an interesting part, though, where Lois finally has to break it off with her for good and tell her that, you know, things are completely over. Uh, Maury, I thought, was a solid in his performance. Same goes for Moran, Jonathan Gennett, Maritod, and Alawak, as well as the rest of the cast, were solid in rounding out this film for what was needed. I would say the effects were really good as well. I thought the weapon was a bit much, but it actually fits with the film and the motif of homosexuality. What I also like is that it keeps men and women being on the table as the possible killers because it being a dildo actually gets removed from the killer's genes which i thought was kind of cool and at the reveal it makes complete sense why this was used the blood we get looks good and the wounds do as well uh we get quite a few deaths in the film which i thought were solid i also think that gonzalez shot the hell out of this film and I actually want to move this into my next point here is that it looks beautiful. I like that the dream sequences are inverted in color and black and white. This hides certain things from us while still giving us the backstory of how this plays out in the end. And the film that Anne is shooting is also very odd and dreamlike and I thought that really worked here. So I would definitely say that the cinematography here is on point. That takes me to the last thing to cover which is the soundtrack. I think that the group M83 that did the music did a solid job. I did find it interesting to find out that the director as well as co-writer is brothers with the lead of M83, so that makes sense as to why that group did the music. It definitely gives us a feel that we're back in the 70s, especially in the club scenes. Uh, there does seem to be long stretches where there isn't a soundtrack, but that does work in building tension, I think, as well. I don't think this will be a soundtrack though that I will listen to often, but I do think it works here for what was needed in my opinion. Also some fun facts that I kind of found, and I have to really give credit to Yen Gonzalez because I think she's some really deep dives that I didn't realize until I started looking for this stuff. The role of Anna Parisi is actually inspired by the real life of 
Anna Marie Tensi, who did a lot of these type of films in uh, this genre of the era. As one of the things that I found was the name cinematographer for the films that are being shot by Anne is Francois Tabou, which is actually an anagram of Francois About, who was a cinematographer for Anne-Marie Tensi. And for the large part, the French gay porn that was filmed in the era that this is set. Going from there, the role of Boucher Dieu is freely inspired by Carmelo Pitix, which I believe Boucher Dieu is actually the fluffer in the film where there was this guy who would just come out when they needed an actor to get hard and he would freely um, give them blowjobs. Luis McKenna is given by is given a reference in Luis Koenigsverter, who is the editor of several films of Anne-Marie Tensi. The name of Archibald Levagun refers to Benoit Archenu, who was the close collaborator of Tensi and directed many of the films produced by her. And the name Anna Parisi is also given tribute to the actress Emanuela Parisi as well. Now with that said, I was so glad that I didn't sleep on this film any longer. I think that this is a beautiful looking Neo Giallo film that's clearly not from Italy. It has a taboo subject that is socially relevant now and placing it back in the time period definitely works as well. The acting is solid across the board with Paradise doing a great job as our lead. She's definitely a broken character and I think that really works. I think the look of the killer is great. The kills are pretty solid. And I think that the mystery wasn't predictable, which I dig for films like this. The soundtrack fit for what was needed and I really dug this overall. I would say if you have issues with homosexuality, I don't think you'll enjoy this as we do get to see a lot of that on screen and that's really the crux of the story. But if you're an adult and can handle seeing things like that that might be out of your social norm, then I would say you'll probably enjoy this. And if you also enjoy art house films with, you know, a little bit of that flair, give this a viewing and I would definitely recommend this as well to Giallo fans. My rating for this is a 9 out of 10. Now that I've given my rating, I just have a few things that I want to give here in spoilers so it wouldn't be that long. So I'm just going to put it here before I shift to the next movie. What I wanted to bring up was the issue of homosexuality with the killer. Now, I'm assuming you've already seen the film, so you know that the killer is Guy. It is tragic because he was having a secret love affair with the star of the original film that we see that is intercut in the beginning. I believe the character's name was Foad. And what ended up happening is the father of Guy catches them together and then decides to murder his son and actually castrates him and then sets the barn on fire is the dreams that she's having that ends up being the film that she makes except she makes the ending much happier than what we got. Now, Guy is killing the actors from that first film because when he went to the city, he clearly sees that this is what happened to him and it triggers him, which is definitely something we get in a lot of Giallo films. Now, I feel bad for him because this triggers him and brings up these bad memories and he is just getting his revenge that way. But it's crazy though is that he ends up getting killed by a theater full of gay men who believe that he is targeting gays because he is anti-homosexual when that's not the case. 
there's just some interesting lines as well that are explored in sexuality that I wanted to bring up at this point. I like that the killer is Anna in the film that she's making, but the person isn't actually gay. She thinks she is because she's seen so many gay actors and gay porn films that she kind of takes on that persona. And so when she gets killed at the end of it and is actually targeting gay people, that's kind of what they chalk that up for the reasoning being there. And then I also wanted to end this off here with the line that Nan states that the more you kill me, the more I love you, which is very tragic. Now at this point, I'm going to take us into the trailer for our next film, which is going to be for Dead Snow. heard the trailer for Dead Snow. This film came out in 2009. Its original title, I believe, I'm not really up on my Norwegian, but I think it's Dodd Snow. And it is a comedy horror film directed by Tommy Workola, which he also wrote the film, along with Stieg Freud Heinrichsen. It stars Jep Beck Larison, Charlotte Frogner, and Jenny Skalavin. This is actually from Norway. 
In the synopsis is a ski vacation turns horrific for a group of medical students as they find themselves confronted by an unimaginable menace, Nazi zombies. Now this was a film that I'd heard about, the premise, and it really interested me. Because it kind of sounded like, from my initial thoughts on it, that this was similar to the film Shockwaves, just throwing it into a snowy environment. I wasn't too far off on this concept, but it is a little bit different, especially with this one having more of the comedic aspects to it. Now, the film starts off with a woman running through the woods away from something. It is dark and we can't see what exactly is following her, though. But whatever it is sets upon her and she screams. It then shifts to two vehicles, one carrying the men and the other the women. The men are Martin, Roy, Vigrad, and Erland, now, I have to say, Erland is my guy. He is a horror movie, or he's a movie expert, but he's a big fan of horror films. And then the women that are coming along on this trip are Hannah, Liv, and Chris. Hannah is actually seeing Martin, while Chris is the new girl in the group that was just invited. Now, they direct are directing her towards Erland, as it seems like he might not be doing the greatest with the ladies. And Vigard is also dating Sarah, who is supposed to be meeting them at the cabin a little bit later. They arrive to the place where they park, and from there they actually have to walk to get to the actual cabin. Now, Vigrad is taking a snowmobile to get them there. This is where Erland and Chris hit it off. The group makes their way to the cabin to, you know, kick off their vacation with partying. Their night takes a turn, though, when Tugger, I believe that's how you say that, shows up. They are hospitable towards him and give him a cup of coffee. He warns them, though, to be careful because the area is cursed and tells them the story about what does curse the area. It goes all the way back to World War II where a group of Nazis held up in the area. They were quite brutal and led by Oberst Herzog, now killed in this area when the townspeople finally revolted against them in an uprising. Now, things get worse, or things take a turn that night when Chris disappears and they can't seem to find her. That's when they're attacked by the Nazi zombies. This makes Vigrad worried about Sarah as it becomes a fight for survival against these undead monsters and he decides to try to find her and because she still hasn't arrived and she was skiing across country to get there. Now, as I said, this is one that I hadn't, I had heard about previously, and I was a little bit worried that it was going to be cheesy. I'm actually pretty sure I was working at Family Video when this came out, and I do remember seeing the cover, which the cover is kind of funny because you see what I'm assuming is Oberus Herzog with his head, de like half of his face is missing, and it's in the snow looking at you. Now, I thought that was kind of creative, but I was also, like I said, I thought it might be a little bit too cheesy for my liking. Now, I had heard podcasting podcasters talk about this and from what I heard everybody seemed to be on the positive side of it from what I remember and after having seen this now I definitely fall in that camp as well I do think it's a really interesting film if I'm going to be honest I think there's some really good writing the first that I've alerted to a bit involves Erland it is brought up when about that he's a horror film fan and I like that they have a character like this funny is that Friday the 13th gets thrown out there which is interesting because that Turgair character is kind of like a crazy Ralph filling in the backstory for the area. 
There's also a bit of a slasher element to this film, as the characters get picked off one by one. And Evil Dead 1 and 2 are both brought up, and it's kind of a similar plot that they go to a cabin and there are supernatural aspects hunting them. And Props goes to Chris to show that she's interested in Erland by stating she kind of felt that this is more like an April Fool's Day, which is a deep dive for non-horror fans. And I really kind of dig the parallels to some of these films to what we get here. Something else that I've already brought up, I love the idea of Nazi zombies. It is fairly common knowledge that the, that the Nazis were into the occult and that Hitler really wanted to find a way to win the war, and he was even you know, using the occult to possibly do that. I think that creates some good mythology here that Oberus Herzog found a way to bring his men back. Not only that, they're harboring gold, which is something – are they actually – not only that, they're hoarding gold, which is something else the Nazis did from things that I've learned in history. Now, these zombies aren't traditional ones. If anything, I feel like they're more similar to Lucio Pulci's zombies in that they're not brought back by a virus or anything like that. There's a supernatural way that they come back, and I think it's pretty consistent from what we get from the beginning. I like that they can be killed and that there's a really cool thing that happens here at the climax that really kind of made me you know, have an oh shit moment. Also going with the writing, there are things about these characters that are brought up as well. I'm actually going to shift to the acting here as well that I'm going to talk about. We have Martin who's afraid of blood, which is interesting because by the end of it he's just completely covered in it. But the character is, the actor that plays him is Viger Hull. I think he does a really good job of portraying this fear that he has and has some good character development in it by the end. Heinrichsen, I thought, was a little bit annoying, but that's the character I think he's supposed to be. He makes some jokes that really aren't that funny and don't really land, but it kind of makes it funny that that's what happens. Frogner uh, establishes that she is claustrophobic, and the idea of avalanche is brought up as well, because she ends up being buried in snow at one point, which definitely worked for me. Lasse Valdell, Evie Kasseth Rostin, Larison and Anne Dahl Trope are all solid as well. And what I think is really good here is that they all are distinct characters, and I didn't really hate any of them, which makes me get into a film even more when that's the case. Bjorn Sundquist, who plays the Harbinger character, I thought he did a really good job as well. Orjan Gampst, who plays the Oberus Herzog, I thought he did a good job, and I thought the rest of the zombies also did pretty solid here as well. As for the pacing, I think that was good. We have a runtime around an hour and a half, so it doesn't take long to get into it and doesn't outstay its welcome. I did find it a bit odd that the transitions from night into day, and I wasn't expecting that. It's interesting, though, to have a film like this, you know, in the horror genre, to actually be in the daylight for a good portion of it, because we usually kind of feel like bad things happen at night, so in the day we are normally feeling more safe, but this film takes that away from us. The second half of the action actually happens as I was kind of saying, during the day, so I do like that. I do think we get some pretty good backstory in a couple of different ways as well. We have one of our characters finds a cave where there is things left over from these Nazis, so I thought that was cool. And as I'll say, it's pretty solid overall, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. I also liked how it ended, as it wasn't what I was expecting, and it's not even, it's 
kind of a bleak ending, which I'm always down for as well. Going from here, the effects were really good as well. They looked to be done mostly practical, which surprised me. There's a head being ripped apart, as well as guts being pulled out, which all look good. I did notice a few moments of CGI, and that's mostly with the blood. It is seen more at a distance though, so I don't have any issues there. And the blood dries on people's faces doesn't necessarily look normal, but I think a lot of that makes sense because it's so cold out that it is drying that way. And I also think it brings a sense of realism as well. I will say that this is part comedy though, so some of the deaths are a bit outrageous. It doesn't necessarily ruin the film, it does take the score down for me slightly though. The last thing to cover would be the soundtrack. I love that this film early on starts with a classic piece of music and that really sets the tone. The rest of the score I think was fitted for what was needed. It doesn't necessarily stand out to me as a soundtrack that I would listen to regularly, but what we got here definitely worked and I thought it was on point and fit the film. And then just before I completely wrap this up, I just found some bits of trivia that I found interesting. The zombies in this film are a combination of your typical pop culture ones, as well as they're also adding in some ancient Norse mythology as well, which is something called the Drog, which I guess is an undead creature that will inhabit graves, often of the ones of important men, as they have treasures in them. Which kind of actually reminded me of the film November that I saw last year when people would hoard their gold and things like that. And the drug actually also protects these treasures as if they were their own. It's originally going to be called Rod Snow, which is Red Snow in English, which I guess is paying a homage to the Swedish Norwegian miniseries of the same name. Uh, the, this was inspired by the Nazi zombies portion of Call of Duty World at War, which I thought was kind of an uh, intriguing little thing. And it's also interesting, the character of Erland is wearing a brain dead t-shirt. Dead Alive is what I know it as, but many people from New Zealand where it came from, and I also believe other countries call it brain dead, which is a zombie movie as well, which I thought was cool. And near the end, there's a moment where a character is fighting the zombies and he has a hammer and sickle, which is kind of funny because I know the sequel is Red vs. Dead and looking at, you know, the communist aspects that fought during World War II as well. So just to wrap everything up, I really dug this film. It really combines some concepts that I really enjoy with Nazis, zombies, and things of the like. There's some really good writing here, which I appreciate. The acting is solid. We as and we also have some distinct characters as well. It is paced in a way where it never gets boring, so that was nice. The effects and looks of the zombie are good. The soundtrack fits for what was needed. The only slight I would have is that it's part comedy. I still really like this film and would say overall it is a good movie. I will warn you, this is from Norway, so I had to watch it with subtitles. If that's an issue, I would avoid it. And like I said, if you can't handle blood and a little bit of gore then I would also avoid this but if you can I definitely would recommend it and my rating on this film is an 8 out of 10. Now I'm going to take you to one last musical break before I end out the show.
I want to thank you all for coming on this journey with me yet again. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email me at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com, all one word. If you want to read any of my written reviews, the it is Reviews of the Dead, and the link for that is horrorreview.webnode.com. On Facebook, you can find me at David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. On FlickChat, the join code is Journey with a Cinephile. And you can go if you would like and help me out. If you could, you know, give me any sort of feedback, that would be much appreciated. If you could also review me on whatever podcatcher you have um, listened to this episode, I greatly appreciate that as well. Uh, this can also be found on at this time Anchor and Spotify, or I will have the RSS feed where you can copy and paste that into your podcatcher. So anytime a new episode drops, it'll go ahead and download it for you there. I again want to thank you for coming on this journey. This is David Garrett Jr. signing off. <laughs>